The seventeen men marching in single file made their way slowly and quietly along this new path. It was the third attempt of this trip, and because of the failures in the previous weeks, the man that led thought they had a better chance of success by taking this new and untested and admittedly more dangerous course. To prevent from losing everyone in one tragic event, the men were roped together in groups of three or four. The lead group was breaking trail in waist-deep snow. The trailing groups were using the leaders not only for route finding, but for a blockade from the searing winds that were pushing and pulling them. The men following were silently questioning the choices of their leader, and perhaps even began to question their own choices. A blast of wind was followed by the unmistakable roaring sound of an avalanche. A small avalanche quickly buried the leader and two of the men tied to him. They were lucky. They were quickly dug out and were okay, and within minutes were back on their feet. As they regrouped and moved forward, their movement and the disruption of the previous slide made the entire area unstable. The choice by the leader to move forward was bold and courageous. As the high-altitude sun washed across the death field, it looked like all was going to be okay. But suddenly, a hundred-foot section of the snowfield cut loose. Pulled down by the power of gravity and with all the speed that tons of snow can travel over an icy slope, the wave swept away everything in its path, including seven Sherpas that had been hired by the British Alpine Club. Six of the Sherpas were buried in snow and were never found. The seventh was swept into a crevasse and, though alive, was impossible to reach. Death by any means in the mountains is horrifying, but dying while helpless and abandoned in a frozen crevasse on Everest is a special kind of hell. It was the 1922 British Everest expedition led by George Mallory. Mallory first in his writings and then publicly blamed himself for selecting the route and causing the avalanche. Other members of the team also blamed Mallory, not only for the avalanche, but also for his judgment and selfishness. After the tragedy, the expedition was canceled, but George Mallory's ambition increased. In 1924, Mallory went back to Everest to make another attempt. Their attempt was courageous and bold. George Mallory, along with his partner Andrew Irvine, though, disappeared on that mountain in 1924. Mallory's body wasn't found until American climber Conrad Anker located it in 1999. George Mallory was a famous and celebrated mountaineer in the 1920s. A World War I veteran of the Battles of France, Mallory was a fearless and, some say, reckless climber. His quotes are famous and part of our daily lexicon. When asked why he wanted to climb Everest, Mallory was the one who said, quote, because it's there. Mallory once wrote that people often asked him what was the use of climbing Mount Everest. And he said, quote, it's of no use at all. What we get from adventure is just sheer joy. And joy is, after all, the end of life. We do not live to eat and make money. We eat and make money to be able to live. That is what life means and what life is for. Was he wrong? Why do we eat and work and try to make money? So we can sit around and eat more and think more about money while life passes us by? I guess we each have to answer that for ourselves. In 1932, Maurice Wilson decided that climbing Everest was his destiny. It had been eight years since Mallory had been lost, and there had not been another expedition to Everest since Mallory's disappearance. 
but Maurice was confident in his chances of success. He told a newspaper that, after landing 10,000 feet up on the mountain and with enough rice and dates to last 50 days when he began the climb, one fit and trained man can succeed where a large group would fail. That's quite a swipe at the several expeditions and at that point the 11 men who'd already died trying to climb Everest. The success of Maurice Wilson's life were now reduced to a couple of pieces of fruit and God. My name is Jeff Argen, and this is the High Adventure Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode three of season two of the High Adventure Podcast. If you're new to this season, you might want to go back and catch up by listening to episodes one and two. If you're new to the High Adventure podcast, I encourage you to go back and listen to season one, where we drilled down into the story of the 1977 Yosemite pot plane crash. If you've never heard that story, check it out. It's a wild one. If you're enjoying these stories, uh, please leave a review for us on any of your podcast platforms. And please, please tell your friends and share this podcast on your social media sites. As always, you can email me at thehighadventurepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at High Adventure Podcast, on Facebook at The High Adventure Podcast, and on Instagram at High Adventure Podcast. We also always post these episodes on both of our YouTube and Vimeo channels, and both those channels are under our company name of Accidental Productions. A lot of you are trapped out there during this virus time, and if you're listening to this a year from now, perhaps we're out of this situation, but if you are trapped and looking for something to watch, Take a look at Assault on El Capitan, our film about the second ascent of Wings of Steel. That's Yosemite's most controversial climb. It's a wild story as well. It's available on streaming sites everywhere. No more commercials. We're just going to get on with it. we got a lot to cover, and here we go. In episode two, we looked at Maurice Wilson's early life, his time in the Army, and his troubled relationship, and the difficulty he had assimilating back into society after World War I. As I was doing research for this story and finding out more about Maurice and the difficulties he was having assimilating back into society after World War I, it reminded me of a story that a friend told me about his time in Vietnam. I had one time asked him if he'd ever thought of just taking off, of deserting, going AWOL, whatever you want to call it. And he said he really only considered it seriously one time. He told me that his platoon had been sent out one night to, in his words, scout the area. I don't know if they do recon or whatever it is they do. They send these guys out at night trying to check out the jungle. And he said they were walking down a dirt road and all of a sudden they came under seriously heavy fire, machine gun fire, bullets going everywhere. He said his friend who had been walking next to him was shot in the head and killed instantly in the first burst of machine gun fire. He and another buddy jumped in the ditch on the side of the road. He said the fear was absolutely indescribable. He and his buddy were pinned down in the dark next to the road, not knowing who was alive and who was dead, not even knowing where the gunfire was really coming from. He said he finally decided to lift his head just a little bit to try to see what was going on and was anyone else even alive. He saw tracer bullets flying everywhere. He said they were passing all around his buddy and his buddy was only lying 10 feet away and some of the tracers were actually passing between his friend's legs. He realized at that moment that if it was happening to his buddy just 10 feet away, those bullets were also flying through his legs. So he laid there in the dark watching those tracers, and at that moment, he said he thought seriously about just jumping up and running. 
He knew that it would be over quickly one way or the other. He'd either disappear into the jungle or he'd be shot and killed and it would all be over. My friend was 19 years old at the time and he was never quite the same after Vietnam. How could you ever pass judgment or blame someone who was a bit different in their views of the world after hearing them tell you a story like that? Climbing Mount Everest is a kind of a war too. Each step at high altitude can be a battle. Some who make the attempt are not the same when they return, many having lost friends and partners on the mountain. At this point, more than 300 people have died on Everest. Some on the way up and some on the way down. Many of those 300 bodies are still on the mountain, and the people left behind will never be quite the same. Mount Everest is as mythical as it is real. In recent times, with films and television, the mountain has seemed a little bit less mysterious. We've all seen climbers on TV in heavy mountaineering clothing trudging their way up the trail with hundreds of other people. To the average person, it seems like if you've got a lot of money and a desire, you can reach the summit. The truth is, with money, you can hire a guide and have support from a team of Sherpas. But the fact is, climbing Everest is still really unbelievably hard. And from the couch, it's hard to understand the lack of oxygen and the altitude sickness, not to mention the blistering cold and the unrelenting nature of nature. If I can sidetrack a little bit, does it seem odd to anyone that we call this mountain Mount Everest? Everest is purely a Western name, and this mountain and the people living in the region have existed a long time before Westerners found their way to the Himalayas. It was in 1841 that a British survey team identified an obscure peak in the Himalayas that was identified as the world's tallest mountain. This team was led by Sir George Everest, and in 1865, they named the mountain after him. It's interesting to me that the mountain has not been renamed with a name that is a little more appropriate for the indigenous people and indigenous languages of the region. Even in the U.S., we renamed Mount McKinley in Alaska to a more appropriate name of Denali. But for a second, let's try to think about traveling to the Himalaya in 1841. What would it have been like to travel through those mountains in 1841? The equipment, the clothing, the food? None of it seemed good or even safe. But the British were determined to map the world and sent surveyors and explorers to locations never dreamed of by other nations. Yeah, 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 they wanted control of the regions of the world, but there's a unique quality about the British. It's beyond domination and seems to be more about adventure and exploration. Those early expeditions to the Himalaya also show courage and maybe recklessness for sure, but certainly some risk aversion. They did what they set out to do, regardless of what the physical or psychological toll might be. In 1841, there were only 26 states in the U.S. That same year, the first wagon train left Missouri for California with 69 adults and a few kids. It would take them until November to reach California. We hadn't even fully explored our own country, and and George Everest and his crew were wandering around the Himalaya. That, to me, is mind-blowing. The trip to the Himalayas from England alone in 1841 would have been stuff a legend. And to see the summit of Mount Everest, which measures 29,029 feet and sits on the border of Nepal to the south and Tibet to the north, this summit is completely engulfed by a jet stream the major part of the year. 
High winds and sub-zero temperatures make traveling on the mountain impossible for most of the year. There's a short window in May and September when climbing the mountain is even possible. This narrow window is bookended by the winter snows and the summer monsoons. I could do a whole episode on Everest's weather, the climbing history, the various routes, the avalanches, the earthquakes, and the death toll. Maurice Wilson was aware of all those dangers, but those dangers were for others to think about. He had summit fever, and there's no cure for that. Three hours of mind and body-numbing hiking through steep snow put the team above the East Rongbu Glacier. They set up camp and settled in for a long, cold night. The wind was howling and the temperatures were 70 degrees below zero. Maurice woke up in the morning and thought he'd developed frostbite in both his fingers and his toes. But after a couple hours, he was able to move both his fingers and his toes. Yeah, that's right. He was able to move a bit after a couple hours. His head was pounding and his throat was raw. He was in the early stages of altitude sickness. He had a cup of tea and ate a small amount of snow, and then he left the tent and started up the mountain again. His first obstacle of the day was a large crevasse that bisected the mountain. He inched his way to the lip and looked into what seemed to be a bottomless pit of sheer icy blue walls. Feeling the unstable snow beneath him, he worked his way along the edge hoping to find a snow bridge to cross the crevasse. In modern Everest climbing, aluminum ladders are dropped across these crevasses and the climbers just walk very carefully over these horizontal ladders to safer terrain. No such convenience for Maurice. He searched for a couple hours for a natural snow bridge that would cross this icy divide. Ice bridges are tricky. You never know how stable or strong that bridge might be. It's a band of thick ice or sometimes just snow that has breached a couple of points that cross this bottomless hole they call crevasses. There is no testing to find out if a snow bridge is strong. Snow bridges are scary and dangerous when you're climbing with a team. It's a complete act of faith to cross a snow bridge alone with no rope and no hope of rescue if it collapses. After finding a snow bridge and recognizing its obvious danger, Maurice decided to look for another way. And for several more hours, he searched for another way to get across that crevasse. But he had no luck. He was at a crossroads. Was this going to be the end of his journey? The end of his life? Or both? He sat down on a snowbank next to the bridge and ate his lunch. After eating five very dry biscuits as slowly as he possibly could, he knew it was decision time. He moved onto his knees and he prayed. He knew that if he truly had faith, he could put the fear and danger aside and he'd be fine no matter what. So he stepped up softly and carefully onto the bridge. One step and then another. These first steps were not strides. He stepped out left foot first and brought his right foot up next to his left. He tried to minimize any vibration, but then he thought, with two feet together at the same time, he was putting all his weight in one spot. Was there a right way to cross a snow bridge? With a deep breath and the knowledge that 
that Snowbridge was only as strong as his faith, he took long, slow strides across the bridge to the other side. He was across the Snowbridge, but was he really any safer now? It was 1934. He was alone on Everest in high winds and sub-zero temperatures, and he'd just crossed a snow bridge that he didn't know would even exist in an hour if he needed to retreat, and looking up he was facing overhanging 60-foot walls of rock and ice, and he was all out of biscuits. Maurice emerged from the Black Forest with a new vision, but the vision of what would be next was unclear. He developed a theory, and now that theory had to be tested. Returning to London, he found his old friends, or lovers, or whatever they were, Enid and Leonard Evans. Leonard and Enid were thrilled to see Maurice was back, and more importantly, he seemed happy and re-energized, and shed of the darkness that he'd carried for so long. Maurice was beside himself with excitement. He was cured of whatever it was that had taken his health, and he was sure that his faith was the main reason for his physical and mental rebirths, so to speak. No pun intended. Maurice, Leonard, and Enid went out to celebrate Maurice's return. They had dinner at the Mayfair, which had been their favorite restaurant before Maurice had disappeared. And after dinner, they went to a nightclub, and after closing down the nightclub, they ended up at Leonard and Enid's apartment. Maurice was still very keyed up and anxious for the conversations to continue. And they did. This is where you think that maybe there was a little alcohol and maybe even some drugs. The Evans enjoyed a party favor now and then, but Maurice was never a drinker. And after his trip to the Black Forest, he was very careful about what he put into his body. More of an energy-fueled monologue than a conversation, Maurice talked about his physical, mental, and spiritual rebirth and he claimed he'd seen many that had been cured of their ailments by fasting and faith. Leonard and Enid listened to Maurice until nearly four o'clock in the morning, at first skeptical, but then they were actually moved by his passion, and finally they were appalled by his intention. Maurice said, I've fasted and I've prayed and I was made whole, and what happened to me can happen to others. My belief that is if a man fasts and fasts properly and finally reaches a stage when his physical body and his soul are one, and as he lies close to death completely drained of all bodily and spiritual ill, he then is ready to be born again. Leonard and Eden were stunned, to say the least. Leonard said it was fine, but it all sounded a bit far-fetched. Enid told Maurice that there was no way she would ever fast for 35 days. All right, said Maurice, forget the fasting. That's only a means and not the end. Faith is really the key to the rebirth. And I believe that if a man has sufficient faith, he can accomplish anything. He was sure to tell them that he had not gone insane and that he'd not become a religious zealot. But the fasting and faith were his theory. And a theory is nothing unless there is attempt to prove it. He was pacing the room now, and the sun was starting to come up, and as Enid drank tea and Leonard smoked his pipe, Maurice pulled an old newspaper cutting from his pocket that reported on the 1924 Everest expedition. With his voice and energy rising, he told the couple of the 300 porters, the ponies, and the yaks, all in support of an expedition that didn't get very far. 
Maurice reached the climax of his rant with a simple statement. All you need to climb a mountain was a tent, a sleeping bag, warm clothes, food, and faith. And then he told the shock couple, Now you know what I'm going to do. I'm going to climb Mount Everest alone. Leonard and Enid looked at him, horrified. No human at that point had been to the summit of Everest, and this is no spoiler, but it'd be another 20 years before Edmund Hillary and Tenzig Norgay stood on the top of Everest. So what is the proper response? What would you do? Your close friend returns from a cathartic experience with a new lease on life. He's engaged in life in a way he hasn't been in over a decade. He has a goal, and he has a plan to achieve that goal. Maurice's plan to climb Everest alone was ambitious and adventurous, maybe even righteous. But given the times, it was perhaps insane. Without a lot of luck, this was certainly going to end in tragedy. As you listen to this, you all know more about climbing Mount Everest as a basic piece of common knowledge than nearly all the scholars and adventurers did in 1932. And when Leonard and Enid caught their breath after hearing Maurice's idea, the next question was obvious. How? Maurice had no climbing experience. Maurice admitted it might take some time to get into physical condition, and he said he would get into shape by walking the 200 miles to his mother's house several times over the next year. Maurice spent months reading everything he could find on Mount Everest. He read expedition reports, geographic surveys, newspaper and magazine articles. He studied possible routes up the mountain, and when he'd read about the Houston-Everest flying expedition, a new plan began to develop. The Everest flying expedition launched in spring of 1933. Two specially prepared biplanes piloted by decorated RAF pilots and a photographer the planes battled high winds and ice fragments from a snow plume and managed to clear the summit of Everest by only 100 feet. The idea was that if it could be shown that planes could fly safely at that elevation and through the unstable weather of Everest, it would serve to highlight the recent advancements in aviation and begin to push commerce into the skies. After studying the plan of the Everest flying expedition, Maurice's plans began to form. Maurice famously told his friends, No strings of Sherpas and yaks for me. No tiring myself out before I get there. I'm going to fly to Tibet, crash land on the mountain slopes, and simply walk to the top. His friends reminded him that he wasn't a climber or even a pilot. And Maurice just said, Well, I'll learn. For some reason, for Maurice to say, I'll learn, isn't surprising. Maurice seemed to have a level of confidence that some say is typical of a Yorkshireman. Yorkshiremen, they say, and whoever they are, um, they say that Yorkshiremen are practical. Practicality, a lifetime of proven success, and faith? What could go wrong? Maurice was 34 years old and had never even been up in an airplane let alone piloted one. But he felt if he learned to fly and then had trouble flying to Tibet, that was just another test of his faith. The easiest route, if you can say easiest when talking about climbing the world's highest mountain in sub-zero temperatures, is to climb from the Tibet side of the mountain. Add to the obvious obstacles, 
The Dalai Lama had been deeply troubled and saddened by the loss of life during the 1924 British expedition, and he'd refused to allow any further attempts at climbing Everest from Tibet. The objection by the Dalai Lama didn't concern Maurice. He knew that recently the Dalai Lama had granted permission for an Everest attempt from another large British expedition, and Maurice was convinced that he'd easily get permission when they had heard his plan and he was able to describe that plan and his faith. The British government thought that promoting aviation would be a way to try to maintain the country's influence in an ever-changing world. It was 1932 and World War II was just around the corner. But at this point, England was enjoying a bit of a renaissance. The government also, in a way to promote aviation, was giving financial support to several flying clubs by subsidizing flying lessons for the general public. Maurice Wilson applied to become a member of the London Aeroplane Club. But before his first lesson, he spent several months researching airplanes and visiting airplane factories around England. He'd settled on a Haviland Gypsy Moth, which coincidentally was built by the Haviland Aircraft Company that was housed next to the Stag Lane Airfield and his own London Aeroplane Club. I'd say that buying a plane before learning to fly the thing is a real commitment. Now the owner of a used Gypsy Moth biplane, Maurice made the bold and some thought arrogant move of painting a name on the side of his plane. He named the plane the Everest. It was spelled E-V-E-R-W-R-E-S-T. Everest. The Everest was a wood-framed aircraft with canvas-covered wings and a 100-horsepower motor. It had a wingspan of 29 feet and was 23 feet long. It had a top speed of 102 miles an hour and a cruising speed of 85. Basically, this was a canvas-wrapped, topless wood box the size of a Chevy Suburban. Now that Maurice had his transportation to Everest, he just needed to learn how to fly the thing. Piloting planes was becoming popular in 1932, but given the delicate construction of the planes and the uncertain nature of flight, those who took to the skies in those early years admittedly did not expect to see old age. Base jumping and wingsuiting are probably the closest things we have right now that might equal the mindset of those early amateur pilots. The Everest was a dual-control airplane. With Maurice's instructors sitting behind him in the passenger cockpit, they tried tirelessly to try to teach him a soft touch on the controls. Like learning to drive, there are some that take to it easily and can drive a car effortlessly no matter what the situation Maurice was not one of these people, at least not in a plane. He was not a natural pilot. He didn't have any feel for the controls. He made sudden and dramatic moves that caused the plane to react violently, and, and often that plane was in a constant state of instability while he was at the controls. This was not easy for Maurice. He'd been good at everything he'd ever tried, but learning to fly was the biggest challenge of his life. He was a terrible pilot. He struggled not only with flying the plane, but with reading maps and with navigation. In these early days of flight, it took most novice pilots about 12 hours of flight time before being able to fly solo and get a license. It took Maurice 19 hours of instruction before he was ready for his solo flight. But in February of 1933, Maurice Wilson became a licensed pilot. Step one complete. He even moved to an apartment closer to the airfield and spent most of his days flying and trying to gain more experience. 
The next step was fitness. Since returning from the Black Forest, Maurice would regularly go on eight to ten day fasts, thinking that this would be a great way to prepare for hard days in the mountains. To increase his stamina, Maurice did what he said, and he walked nearly 200 miles to Bradford to see his mother. It took about five or six days to make this trip, and he made four or five trips in that year. But to be fair, he did spend a few weeks in the Peak District doing what he called practicing hiking up steep slopes and scrambling over rocks. Maurice had another theory that the sun burned off oxygen, so he'd planned to only climb in the early morning and late evening, and also to eat only one meal a day, and for some reason he thought that would help him be able to take in more oxygen. Now these little theories were not the theories of science or mountain climbers of the time, or anyone else for that matter. These were the theories dreamed up by Maurice himself. So things are falling into place. Maurice is going to set off to inspire and change the world. He's a war hero. He's built successful businesses. He's a pilot. He's fasted. He's walked. He's walked up hills. Sometimes. And Maurice Wilson, who the newspapers nicknamed the Mad Yorkshireman, was going to crash a plane on Mount Everest and walk to the top and inspire mankind to follow their dreams and make the world a better place. The press had gotten a hold of Maurice's story and were writing articles about his plans. They weren't necessarily kind or even promoting his trip so much as articles that asked the question, why? George Mallory had his reason of because it's there, but Maurice had bigger ideas. One newspaper was relentless in their attacks of Maurice. They called his plan nothing more than an elaborate suicide. One evening while walking through Piccadilly, a couple of reporters spotted Maurice walking with a considerable limp. They stopped him and asked him what he was up to. They said he responded very cheerfully. My limp? I got it when I made my parachute jump. When was that? One of the reporters asked. Maurice looked at his watch and said, not quite 20 minutes ago. When they asked him why he made the jump, to test my nerve, he said. And then he limped off. A couple of days later, he received a warning from the Air Ministry against making any further unauthorized jumps over London. There was a lot of concern about Maurice's plan and his decision-making. The British government was aware and concerned. Members of the Aviation Club were also concerned. One member, a Major Hemming, was the managing director of a company that was planning a worldwide air survey. Major Hemming asked Maurice to join his company and said to Maurice, Come with us. I'll see you get all the adventure you want. But Maurice wasn't doing this for his own adventure. He'd had a different mission. He was out to prove his faith theory and to inspire. Maurice couldn't see how mapping the world from the air would test his theory or inspire the world. Maurice was being very methodical. He knew there would be steps to success and each would need to be followed without shortcuts. Now that may seem a strange comment given that he took a lot of shortcuts in learning to fly and training for the climb. But logistics of the flight he knew must be well thought out and planned carefully. He asked for help from the automobile club to get him flight permits and to arrange for fuel and maintenance at all his scheduled stopping points. Aviation had evolved to the point where there were a chain of airports around most of the world, and there were agreements to allow planes of other countries to fly over their territories. During the 1920s, European National Airlines had emerged and Those included Air France and KLM and Lufthansa. 
Oil and fuel companies began stocking the airports to support the emerging commercial planes and the increasing number of private pilots who literally risked their lives with every flight. Maurice set April 21st for his departure date. The Everest had been outfitted with an extra long-range fuel tank that filled the passenger cockpit, and he had the undercarriage retrofitted to be heavier and stronger. These modifications would definitely affect how the plane handled in the air, not to mention in takeoffs and landings. But Maurice was confident in his skills, and he was sure the changes to his biplane wouldn't be a problem. Maurice bought a series of large-scale maps that covered his proposed route. He marked the danger areas of the route, but seeing things on a map and seeing those same things from the air are very different. And it was going to be another test of his faith, I guess. His flight plan seemed reasonable, if you forget the fact that it was 1933 and a guy with virtually no experience was going to fly a modified biplane intentionally into the side of the highest mountain on Earth. If he left on Friday, April 21st as planned, his first stop would be Freiburg, Germany, where he planned to spend the weekend with friends. His next stop would be in Austria, where he would refuel before crossing the Alps. He planned his Alps crossing carefully, knowing that several planes had crashed over the years trying to cross the Alps. With no oxygen on board, he planned to fly below 10,000 feet, and he worked out flight paths that would take him around the highest peaks of the Alps. Once across the Alps, he planned stops in Milan, Rome, Naples, and Palermo. Then he was going to cross the Mediterranean into Tunis, and then refueling at a series of desert airstrips in Tripoli and Benghazi and Tobruk, Libya, and Sidi Barani, Egypt. This section was in some ways as dangerous as the Alps. If he was forced to land in the desert along this leg of the trip, he'd have no chance to survive. And after a stop for fuel in Cairo, he'd fly across Arabia to Baghdad. Then with restrictions in place about flying over Iran, Maurice would fly along the coast of the Persian Gulf and into what is now Pakistan, and then on into India. Once across India, he'd follow the Ganges River into Purnia, and then into Darjeeling, and from there would be a short flight through Nepal, and then to Mount Everest. All in, it'd be a 5,000-mile flight and a quick crash landing on the mountain and a short walk to the summit. So the departure date was set, but suddenly Maurice came down with tonsillitis. He'd hoped to arrive at Mount Everest in mid-May. If he missed his departure date, he'd miss his window to get to Everest before the monsoon season began. But he knew what to do. He fasted and prayed. Within a week, he declared himself healthy and ready to go. He missed his departure date by only three days. So on Sunday morning, April 24th, he waved goodbye to friends and a couple of reporters as he got into his plane and headed down the runway. His first destination was going to be Bradford, where his family was waiting to say goodbye before he set off across the English Channel. The plane was tuned and running fine. It was about three in the afternoon, and he was only a few miles from his destination when the engine began to cough and stutter a bit. Maurice tried to gain height, but as was his style, he jerked the stick back too violently and the plane stalled. The Everest was now spinning helplessly toward the ground. He managed to get some control, and the engine seemed to regain a bit of power. And he was now cruising at about 800 feet when all of a sudden the motor cut out completely. And he was losing altitude quickly and was going to have to try a forced landing. But with his inexperience, he miscalculated everything. And then was hit with a crosswind, and he undershot the runway by 50 yards. 
The wheels of the plane tore through a hedge, causing the plane to cartwheel over and ending upside down on a small country road. Maurice was left hanging upside down in his safety harness, trying to assess the damage to himself and his plane. Just then, a young boy riding on his bike stopped and asked the inverted pilot of the crash plane, Can I help you, mister? The kid unbuckled Maurice's seatbelt, and Maurice tumbled out onto the road. That night, the Everest was loaded onto a truck and driven back to London for repairs. Not only was Maurice alive, he barely had a scratch. In the next episode, Maurice will finally set off on his journey, but his problems have barely begun. Strap in as we take an open-air flight across Europe, parts of Africa, the Middle East, and into Asia. This is going to be a rough ride. I'm just like my old man, he told me so Lying on his deathbed watching the picture show The product of the night The bottle and some smoke 